0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I am NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, the host of today's special edition episode, Advocacy and Obesity. This is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AMP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Obesity is a chronic and often progressive disease that requires long-term management. Despite this, many people are not getting the support they need, and NPs are ideally situated to partner with their patients and be their advocate in this journey. In this episode... You'll be listening to our experts answer and discuss member questions about overcoming obesity bias and advocating for our patients with obesity. I am excited to welcome our experts for today's podcast, nurse practitioner Angie Golden and pharmacist Ted Kyle. I am so excited to
1: be part of this podcast with my friend and colleague Ted Kyle. I'm Dr. Angie Golden. I'm a family nurse practitioner, and I own NP Obesity Treatment Clinic. And I actually can give Ted part of the credit for the fact that I am in this field. So I do want to say thank you to him for that. But before we get started, there's a few things that I'd like for you all to know about Ted. First of all, he's a pharmacist. And I actually, until we were getting set up for this podcast, was not aware of some of the things that Ted has done. I know that he is devoted to policy and advocacy around obesity, but Ted, I didn't actually know you chaired the Obesity Society's Advocacy Committee and served on Stop Obesity Alliance Steering Committee. Then you guys, if that's not enough, he has served on the Board of Directors for the Obesity Action Coalition, which is the, the person... Oriented Organization for Obesity, and the National Academy of Medicine's Roundtable on Obesity Solutions. In recognition for all of these things that he's done, and I am so glad that you've been recognized for these things, Ted, he was presented with the Atkinson Stern Award for Distinguished Public Service from the Obesity Society, which is an amazing award. Both of those were people who did so much for the field of obesity, and now he holds the award that has their name on it. And he was member of the year for the Obesity Action Coalition. So, but of course, he started his life, professional life as a pharmacist and has a master's of business administration. And the way I got to know him was serving on the Action Coalition when we got to do some research around obesity. And then every day, Ted's in my email box because he runs one of the most amazing blogs. If you aren't already a member of this, one of the things I want you to do when we're done with this podcast is to go and get signed up for it because it keeps me in the know of so many things that I wouldn't know about. So, Ted, could, let's start this out. Can you tell me a little bit about that
2: blog? Well, it, uh, it serves to keep me current because I stay uh, kind of in touch with what's happening in news, in scientific publications, uh, and from other people. I learn from people like you and from folks in a small sort of obesity Uh, sort of inside baseball community on Twitter, what's of interest, what people are talking about, what is new. And I've just have the privilege of putting something out there every morning and uh, and having people, smart people like you read it. And to me, that's enough, uh, enough reason to keep writing it.
1: Can you tell me how to say the name of the blog? I'm always afraid I'll say it wrong.
2: Oh uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a screwy spelling, but uh, the pronunciation is pretty simple. It's conscience health. Great.
1: So if you haven't already been subscribed to that, you need to go in there and do that. So Ted, I don't know how much you know about the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, but we have communities, and one of those communities is the Obesity Specialty Practice Group. And knowing that I was going to get to be on here with you, I asked for them to send me questions that they would like to have asked of you, specifically because I think that policy and advocacy are things that we don't always keep at the forefront when we're busy clinicians day in and day out in the clinic. So Elizabeth from Salt Lake City had two questions for you, but the first is, Obviously, she's read what you've written because she said she'd love to know your thoughts on how to honor body positivity while working in this field. And I think we've all struggled with how do we keep patients positive about who they are as a person while trying to treat a disease that is so apparent.
2: Right. So I think the best thing to do is start from a place of respect, and care, and putting health first. I really love the new obesity treatment guidelines from the from Canada, which uh, you know, if you sum it all up, it's all about health first before weight. So many people are in the habit of talking about obesity treatment in terms of weight loss, but uh, as I know, you know. Angie, weight loss is really just a small part of the picture. Very necessary for some people, but generally speaking, in a treatment program, weight loss occurs over a short period of time, and then you have the rest of your life. And what are you going to do there? Um, And so it's all about maximizing health well beyond specific questions about weight. And if you start from a place of respect well then you start from a place where you're respecting what an individual's goals are and you're doing something that they call uh, shared decision making where you as an expert in obesity care help the patient as an expert on themselves (laughs) and their own body figure out what are my particular goals
1: i love that and you know Many of my patients come and of course, they always have a weight goal in mind. And I always try to talk to them about, like you just said, that quality of life, what part of their health is being impacted? And what can we do to make that better? And I think that that does help take away from just the superficial part of the waist measurement or the hip measurement or the dress size. It helps reframe obesity as the chronic disease it is. And I think to today or yesterday, you had something about weight control. And I right. I think I'm really liking that term versus maintenance. Right. That it's, you know, weight loss. Absolutely. We try to get that five to 10% to impact, as you just said, all of the other things that obesity can cause But I really like that idea of talking right up front about weight control. And I think that that can help with body positivity, that we're not talking so much about what the body looks like as much about what health. And you mentioned the obesity guideline from Canada that came out in 2020. For anyone who's not looked at that, one of the reasons I love it so much, it has a section in every chapter for the healthcare provider it has a section for the patient, and then it has a section on policy. Have you done a lot of looking at that one?
2: Absolutely. Uh, The folks in Canada have uh, quite an amazing thing going. And in the formulation of those guidelines, they had patients involved every step of the way. So it's uh, it's a very holistic approach to what I like to call obesity care, and uh, I think that emphasis on care, particularly in obesity, because of the nature of this condition, and as you alluded, it, it gets tied into a person's concept of themselves, and uh, uh, that notion of care becomes very, very important. It's very abstract, and health systems are not always good about providing care. They're good about providing health services that they can bill for, but not so much care because care is very time intensive. And uh, it takes someone experienced like you to be able to figure out, okay, within the constraints of reality, how can I deliver care for my patients?
1: And I think that leads us to Elizabeth's second question really well. And some practical tips for people who are in the clinic day in and day out and practical tips that are short. So something that they can do within that 15 minute primary care or internal medicine practice visit. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I have really not nearly as much perspective as you do. But I do have one thing that I would say is very, very important, and I've learned this from many good obesity care providers, and that is listen first. Because if you are talking as much or more than you listen, then you're talking too much. And really, that is how you demonstrate that you are delivering care, because you can't provide care for someone, particularly in this field, If you're not listening to them and understanding where they're coming from, understanding what their history with obesity is.
1: You know, I think one of the tips that I would recommend for for those who are in a clinic is when you go to your clinic the next day after listening to this podcast, look and see what magazines are in your waiting room. Because if we're going to talk about body positivity and practical tips for that, Start with where the patient starts coming in the door. What do they see? Are they welcomed immediately? Are the chairs big enough for them? Is the reading literature that's there about health versus about the latest 10-day diet that you can lose 30 pounds on? I To me, that's one of the most practical things that people could do. And could make a change very, very rapidly to let people with obesity know that they are right there with them. And I think, Ted, you've written about this a lot. The next practical tip for me would be to learn patient-first language if you're not already using it. So can you speak a little bit to patient-first language?
2: Well, so what I would say is that patient-first language is one of many, many cues that can signal uh, acceptance and respect for the person that you're encountering. And as you mentioned when you said, let's look around the clinic and see what kind of cues we're sending, uh, those implicit cues wind up being much more important than the explicit cues. You know, most people these days, thank goodness, have gotten beyond explicit fat shaming, where you point fingers and call people names. But person-first language is about regarding a person as a whole person first, and not identifying them according to their uh, body shape, size, not calling them obese. Some people claim in the fat acceptance community the identity of being fat, but that's probably not more than about 10% of the population. So person-first language is about regarding the person that you are with, the person with living with obesity, as a person-first. Simple check for that is just look and see if the word obese comes out of your mouth, if the word obese goes down on paper. I was just reviewing a paper yesterday and uh, they talked about obese people. Well, you wouldn't talk about a cancer person. There's not an equivalent word in cancer where you can label someone as cancerous or uh, full of cancer or something like that uh, because that's just not right. But when people implicitly think of the condition of obesity being an identity, then that word obese comes out of their mouth. And you've stopped regarding that person as a, as a, as a person. You've started regarding them Uh, only in terms of their uh, adiposity.
1: And I love that. And I, with you, I was doing some reviews of papers last week, and it was actually for a journal that's going to do a whole section on obesity. And four of the five authors had non-person first language. Yep. And so it, it surprised me in one hand, but on the other hand, it didn't because it's been said that way for so long. So I think that what, for me, a quick, easy fix in your practice is to teach everyone to say a person or a patient with obesity, and I will plead as a woman with obesity for you to do that because It is very, very impactful. Now, you may not be able to change your EHR quite as easily because some (laughs) of the codes come across wrong. Um, And I think that for me is another piece. I don't use the codes that say due to excess calories because again, that's another label. I don't know that that person's obesity is just due to excess calories. Um, So I often will use the one that says obesity other because I think it's a better reflection of it. But, you know, I think changing an EHR is is not quite as rapid a fix, but it's something that people could kind of keep in mind, I think.
2: Exactly, I was getting a question about those diagnosis codes and my answer to that is it's ch- changing, but it's changing slowly. Yes,
1: so Nancy from Maine, and I I loved her question. I'd like to ask Ted how he stays so positive and focused. Obesity care is hard work and often misunderstood. I think we just kind of talked about that. It can be very misunderstood by our peers if we are doing this work. And what we as providers face is nothing compared to what our patients are enduring in terms of bias. So Nancy says some days it can just get you down. What are your strategies for... getting up and tomorrow morning writing another blog for us to be able to see what's out there. How do you keep that positivity?
2: So I I think the question about positivity is a really good one because starting out doing this work, uh, you know, two two decades ago, but doing the advocacy work really for more than a decade now, uh, what motivates me to do this is the knowledge that looking backward, we're so far off the mark. We're doing so many things that are not helpful and so few things that actually are helpful. And that's kind of a negative thing. Uh, but the, the, the positive side of that coin is the because things are so messed up with respect to obesity or have been in the past, uh, I've had the confidence to know that they can get so much better. And so to stay positive i stay focused on and it's important to know where you want to go what does the future look like that will be better than where we are today or where we were yesterday and for me that boils down to a little bit of a mantra that that i keep in the back of my head to there there are all kinds of things that need to change and that can get better and and uh, i could go on forever about it but When I boil them down to the utter basics, it's really three things that we need to be pursuing. One is objectivity. And when I say objectivity, I mean objectivity instead of bias. Most of what we've done historically has been through the lens of bias, biased beliefs about people with obesity, biased beliefs about obesity itself, biased beliefs about what works to uh, provide care for obesity. So we need more objectivity and less bias. Uh, Then secondly, and sort of springing from that, we need more curiosity. Okay? Lots of people come into obesity and say, well, I weigh myself every day. And if they've never lived with obesity, they say, and because of all the things that I do, uh, I don't have a problem with obesity. I have, uh, you know, I I have a lot of points on the virtue meter. And if only other people would uh it it would get those points on the virtue meter they'd be just fine but in fact what we need is more people to say you know what uh there are a lot of things that i'd like to know about obesity i don't know all there is to know about obesity scientists who work in this field know that we don't know everything we need to know clinicians who are really smart clinicians that i respect know that they don't have all the answers and they don't have cookie cutter answers where one size fits all and so it's essential for us to develop more curiosity about obesity and a a, a, a hunger to learn more and then finally care care for the people who are affected by obesity and i think care is really important so when i talk about obesity in that, in healthcare, I think in terms of providing actual care for people who are living with obesity—not a rote treatment, not you know I'm going to fix you, but care for their actual human needs that relate to their medical condition. Uh, and uh, care means that uh, in your clinic, you really don't tolerate people who uh, disrespect your patients because they are human beings and they are worthy and they deserve respect. So uh, that, that, those are the three things that keep me very positive. The, the need, the, you know, my uh, desire to, for myself and for everybody who works in this field to have more objectivity, more curiosity to solve about what will solve this problem and more care for the people who are affected. And that care needs to extend into preventive strategies because so often in the past I've heard people say, well, you know, we've just got so much obesity, we're never going to be able to treat all of it, so we've just got to prevent it. And yes, prevention absolutely is, is absolutely essential, but prevention needs to be informed by uh, a caring understanding for the lives of the people that you're trying to enhance, not, uh, not uh, not dictate or not uh, not not really try to control, but rather enhance the lives of the people that you're uh, that you're trying to uh, prevent disease in.
1: I love the idea of using the especially the two words curiosity and care. I think they combine together to really say what it's like to work in a in a nurse practitioner practice and probably my colleagues, physicians and PAs as well. But I think that curiosity, it's interesting. I was just at an obesity conference and somebody had said to me, Well, I'm not sure I'm gonna attend because you know I've been doing this for 10 or 15 years. And I mean really how much more am I going to learn? And they they went ahead and signed up and we were texting back and forth because, of course, it was virtual. So we couldn't sit next to each other and whisper or write notes. <laughs> and every single presenter, we both came up with new learning things. because. But without having that curiosity, what else can I learn? Yep. We might not have done it. And I think the caring part of that for me is that when I'm done with those conferences, I almost always do something different in my practice. And I tell my patients why. Because they kind of are like, well, we've been doing fine for the past year. Why are we changing? Why are we thinking of these other things? Well, because I've learned something new that might help with your obesity care. And I think those two things can go so well together. And I also think you're right. They're part of what keeps me so positive as well. I don't think I could have put it into those words quite that way, but I do. I think it keeps me, I probably would have used entertained versus curiosity, but I do think that that is exactly why this field of healthcare for the past seven years has just been the center of my focus. So that's thank you for that. And I know that Nancy's gonna really enjoy that answer as well. Um, Donna from New York wants to know what policy changes you believe are on the horizon.
2: So when I think about policy, I think about sort of the environment, the regulatory, the practice environment, that overarching set of very abstract ideas that, that, that govern how uh, how we um, deal with the challenge of obesity and I tend to think about obesity care because this is a health condition this is a chronic condition this is a chronic disease that for which people often do not provide good care uh, historically we've always thought of it in terms of weight loss and even if you read the obesity literature and uh, and Researchers who are very smart about obesity, you get a lot of stuff that is, doesn't talk about obesity care, but rather talks about weight loss. And that that kind of, you know, doesn't sit well with me because weight loss is, I, I know from talking to you, is a small part of what you do. It is mm-hmm. part of what you do, but it's a, it is it, it is only a part. And so what I see is many small increments of change on the horizon in many different ways that will bring us more to an orientation toward chronic care for this chronic disease, because weight loss does not cure obesity, uh, but chronic care is essential for managing obesity, and I see more of that and less about acute weight loss uh there's this paper that's out in the New England Journal of Medicine today that is all about how do we control weight over a year span versus you know really before the study started all of the subjects in that study got uh i think it was a 12% weight loss from a very low count cal- an intensive very low calorie diet over a period of 8 weeks and that's totally doable uh, but mm-hmm. it, it the weight loss by itself doesn't solve the problem because the people in the placebo arm of that study, the control arm of that study, uh, within the year had gained back about half of that weight, and over time, the literature would say that absent ongoing care, they're going to gain back all of that weight mm-hmm. because the body manages your fat mass toward a toward a set point in obesity. That set point. Is a little bit dysregulated. So, just to you know, sum it up, what what I really see happening is more emphasis on chronic care, less stupidity built into policies around obesity care that assume that uh, oh, you've lost weight, so you're done. You don't uh, you don't need uh, any further care. Well, that that we we would laugh at that for hypertension, for diabetes, for, exactly uh, for dyslipidemia but people are stupid enough to think, you know, okay, you've lost weight, you just need to keep it off and go on your merry way.
1: Yeah, and isn't it interesting that even the people that have come along to understand that it's not just eat less, move more. We know that that it's m- much greater than that. It's, you know, the quality of food may have a big impact on the microbiome and and how the body utilizes that nutrient, but I, but when the weight is lost, even the people who have started to understand that there's genetics, environment, biology, still stop and say, okay, the weight's been lost. We're good. It, still, still that surprises me. And I think what it really does is bring us back to the fact of implicit bias.
2: Oh, yes, it's, absolutely. yeah. Yeah,
1: it, it still is demonstrating the lack of understanding of obesity as a chronic disease, because if someone with diabetes or maybe hypertension's even better because we truly do work to get people under 130 over 80, we would never in a million years say, okay, you're there. We're good. Stop your medications.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. And
1: yeah. So I think that, but it shows that we still in the healthcare environment have a fair amount of of implicit bias still around the disease of obesity. And I couldn't agree more. And Until we have truly embraced this in a chronic care model, we're not going to be moving forward in policy or
2: in care. So I'll tell you a little story that kind of illustrates just what you're talking about, which is, you know, personally, everybody that I care about has one way or another been affected by obesity. And I personally have been affected by obesity. Uh, and uh, I, now for a number, quite a number of years, I've been taking an anti-obesity medication. And uh, I, uh, because of the way the policies exist within uh, pharmacy benefit uh, manager management plans, uh, you have to get your. I have a. I, ha, I had a, uh, uh, a a drug benefit that covered obesity, but it required prior authorization, and then the the drug would have to be reauthorized every six months or a year. It 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 never was very transparent, but the doctor would have to say, yeah, he 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 needs to keep taking this, uh, and in order for it to continue to be paid for under my prescription plan, well, one year. I go to the pharmacy to pick up my prescription and, you know, one month, uh, and, uh, the pharmacist said, <laughs> you need to talk to your doctor. Cause he, uh, he, he, he sent back to the, uh, PBM that, uh, that, uh, this is just optional for this patient. <laughs> and, uh, I said, Oh, really? I said, yeah, they'll, oh my they'll reject that. So I, uh, called up the, my, my provider and, uh, spoke with the nurse in the practice and, and, she said, well, I'll check with him. And she came back, uh, called me back and said, yeah, that's that's what he said. And uh, he, she said, well, do you want to come in and talk to him about it? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> and so I went in to talk to him. They, they fit me in at the end of the day. And he said, well, why are you here? And I said, because you're about to cost me a lot of money by making me pay out of pocket for this drug because you told them that I didn't really need it. And he said, well, yeah, that's right. You don't uh it's not you know this drug is not indicated for maintaining weight loss it's indicated just for weight loss and you're not at a bmi over 30 now (laughs) i said you know as a matter of fact you need to read the package insert because the package insert says that it's for weight loss and maintenance and in fact i happen to know a little bit about this drug They did placebo controlled crossover studies showing that if you stop taking the drug, you regain the weight, just like your blood pressure would go up after you stop taking the antihypertensive medication, such as the one that you've prescribed for me to maintain my blood pressure. And he's like, well, they're not going to pay for it. I said, yes, they have been paying for it. They will continue to pay for it. He said, well, I'm here to tell you that they will reject this, but I'll write that letter. But if they reject it, don't you ever talk to me about this again. <gasps> <And laughs> I'm at a new provider now.
1: Uh, yeah, I would think so. But but I think that there's so much of that implicit bias around this. And it's just another way that we can see it. And I've been fortunate to not have to have that precise conversation But I've had one very much like it. The outcome was different. Right. Yeah. The provider that I was with was like, oh, well, duh. I mean, they kind of went, what was I thinking? So fortunately, the outcome was different and I didn't have to change providers, but I certainly would have if that had been the outcome. So, And I, I think that often when I'm giving talks about obesity, one of the questions that comes up is... When will I know it's okay to stop the anti-obesity medication? And that's when I know that I haven't got my point across on chronic care yet. So, But it's great to hear it because if they don't verbalize that, then I don't have any way to know that that implicit bias is showing up. So I think those are great ways. How Since we're talking really about some policy, one of the big policies that I know you've been very intimately working with is the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act. What is that actually potentially going to do for those of us in
2: practice? So it's all about uh, providing for better coverage under Medicare for obesity care. And, basic, and in fact, two different forms of obesity care. One is uh, the intensive behavioral care that is uh, sort of a foundation for, uh, for obesity care that you know the, the uh, uh, coaching on diet and exercise right now the way Medicare uh, which will cover some uh, intensive behavioral therapy because it's part of the uh, USPSTF guidelines for preventive medicine. Uh, but it, it is implemented in such a way where it has to be delivered by a primary care physician. And having it covered by a dietician, uh, a, uh, a clinical psychologist, other allied health professionals can be quite tricky. And in order for that problem to be cleared up and those other allied health professionals to be providers, we need this. Treat and Reduce Obesity Act implemented, CMS has said that they don't feel like they have the authority to do this, although, you know, some scholars that we've worked with have said, well, if they really wanted to do it, they could, uh, you know, thinking makes it so often in policy. So that's one part of what the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act do. The other part of the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act will uh, uh, take care of is pharmacotherapy for obesity. Right now, when Medicare Part D was implemented, uh, there was a specific exclusion for quote-unquote weight loss medications, and that was at a time when there weren't really a lot of options for anti-obesity medications. Since then, we've had five approved, and we have more on the way, and it's absurd to have a chronic disease like obesity that is causing so many other diseases, where we could easily treat this disease, but uh, but we are excluded because of a, a pre-existing bias about anti-obesity meds, that these are all just short-term diet pills that you really shouldn't be taking anyway. Uh, and, and so that's the second thing that it would change. It would allow Medicare to cover anti-obesity medicines. And that's important to me because I'm now on Medicare. And I can't, you know, in all of the different options I have for buying a plan, I can shop around plans till the cows come home, but none of those plans will really cover an anti-obesity med because of that specific exception that's built into the regulations, which is insane at this point in time when we have effective anti-obesity medicines. But right now, the only thing Medicare does is says, we'll come back and see us when you need bariatric surgery, and we'll cover that. Right. Isn't that bizarre? You'll, yeah.
1: you'll cover the most intensification of treatment of obesity, but not what might, A, prevent surgery, or B, treat the chronic disease within a medical practice. Um, one thing just to clarify on the Medicare IBT, the primary care physician is part of the wording, but it also includes NPs and PAs who are in primary care. So it does exclude any providers who are, for instance, cardiologists. And we see a lot of cardiology practices right now, or even more bizarre to me is it excludes endocrinology practices. I mean, this is an endocrine disorder. And we've said, now that said, most practices can't realistically afford to do IBT one-on-one because the reimbursement is so poor. For 15 minutes, I think it's up to $27 at the physician rate, so 85% for nurse practitioners. And that's just not a model that most practices can tolerate. There is an option, though, for the NPs who are out there to do a group of patients. And I used to have a group of about 10 women who would come at one time. They're there for a half hour, and now it becomes a more reasonable way to utilize IBT from a financial perspective for the practice. Right. Do you think Troa has much chance of passing this year? I know it's been presented to Congress numerous times over the past few years.
2: Well... Uh, here is where I'll go back to your question about staying positive and focused. I have absolutely no doubt that Troy is going to pass. And the reason I have no doubt about that is because it's the right thing to do. It is insane to, uh, just from a simply a financial perspective, to leave so much obesity untreated. And uh, as more people come to understand obesity as the chronic condition that it is, one that progresses, one that causes many other diseases, then it will become blindingly obvious to everybody that we've been killing ourselves with this uh, by sending people away and telling them, no, sorry, we're not going to help you with this condition. Come back to see us when you're really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And then we'll deal with it.
1: And I, I'm i a little more optimistic this year and it, it's probably not a great reason to be more optimistic, but I think that COVID may help us because COVID has brought to the forefront of even the national media, just how obesity impacts other things. So, you know, I'm optimistic that maybe our legislators will hear us a little bit more because they've been hearing it in the media. Should that be the reason they do it? No, but I don't know about you, Ted, but in my years of advocacy, I'll take anything that helps me get my point across. And if it takes a pandemic to do that, I hate it, but I will use the pandemic for that.
2: (laughs) So I I, 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 I hate to say it, but I agree with you completely. I think what COVID has done is create a teachable moment. Yes. Where it became unmistakable that obesity is a pre existing disease that makes people more vulnerable to obesity. And uh it, it, and and it also has served to expose some of that implicit bias. And implicit bias yes. is so tricky one of the little bits of implicit bias that popped up very early on was stuff that appeared in scientific literature and it appeared in news reports about obesity and vaccination. Before the vaccines were ever approved, there yes. were people out there speculating that the vaccines wouldn't work for people with obesity. Right. And in my mind, that stems ...from a bias that says, well, people with obesity are a lost cause. And you know this isn't going to work. And so the moral of this story is don't be obese, to put it in that, you know, offensive terminology. Uh, But in fact, uh, which I said at the time... For these vaccines to be shown to be effective, because 42% of the population has obesity, they're going to have to test it in people with obesity, and it's going to have to be effective in those people. Yes. So let's not be speculating, let's not be preordaining that these are not going to work. And in fact, when the full data sets were reviewed by FDA, presented to FDA and reviewed by FDA, the analysis showed very clearly that... These vaccines work precisely as well in people with obesity as they do in people without obesity. And yet, even with the approval of the vaccines, you had some folks speculating that, well, there might be some nuance that might, you know, that might not work out as well. And that's just misinformation. And I objected loudly. We've put some papers into the literature. And uh, fortunately... That speculation has fallen away. I haven't heard it since at least March.
1: Yeah, it, it does seem to have disappeared from the conversation that was happening nationally,
2: I would agree. Thank goodness, since it was false.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Not that, not that false information hasn't been able to stay alive, but right. for, for this, we're really happy that it didn't. And I thank you and those who worked so actively. To jump on top of that and get it out of the vernacular. Because I think without people like you, who that national voice that came out very rapidly and said, BS, here's the data, follow the data, quit making things up. You guys didn't say quit making things up, but that's what I read underlying. Right. And quit putting forth untrue information. I, I think we would still be hearing it. And yep. now with vaccine hesitancy, the way it is, we really need to be careful that we are not adding to that with untrue information about obesity. Absolutely. So I, one question that came up, and it came to me by an email asking just to do it without stating their name. What would you recommend as resources for nurse practitioners wanting to learn more about policy and advocacy? Where should they go?
2: Well, so for policy and advocacy, uh, I, I will admit to a bias. I would say that the Obesity Action Coalition, which is a patient advocacy organization, is a very good place to start. And uh, the resources, you know, becoming a member of the OAC uh, is, can be very inexpensive and, in fact, free. I recommend it strongly because a strong patient-oriented resource in this field is very important. Uh, But another resource that a lot of people probably don't know about that uh, is good and getting even stronger is the Obesity Care Advocacy Network. And you can either type in obesitycareadvocacynetwork.com or just search Google for it and it'll pop right up, Obesity Care Advocacy Network, either way that's a very good resource, and that's a Washington uh, coalition of various organizations that are committed to better care for obesity and better access to care. And then finally, a resource that uh, I think is useful is something called the Obesity and Energetics Offerings, which is assembled every week by The Indiana University School of Public Health and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. It's a joint venture of those two organizations. And it's just an exhaustive listing of everything that came out in the last week with different sections. And one of the sections there is the uh, policy section. And so you can always pick up something good on policy in uh, in that listing, that compilation, if you really want something to read every week.
1: And that comes by to my email. So yes, that's wonderful, um, because it covers kind of everything around obesity. So sometimes I'll pick up an article that I hadn't seen. Sometimes I'll pick up a policy piece that I hadn't seen. And Obesity Care Advocacy Network, AANP, has been part of that over the past years to help support the general advocacy for obesity. And i been very appreciative of my organization putting forth some effort. They've done stuff on the smartwatch that comes out to our members. They've done stuff on Twitter. And so I want to just throw out a a thank you to AAMP for being a part of the Obesity Care Advocacy Network. And again, it's a great place for nurse practitioners to go and find that information. And I think that we might be able to do some other resources for those of you who are in the Obesity Special Practice Group. We can get a list of some other advocacy places for you. Ted, I'd like to end with one more question. And it's it's a little different, but you brought up the Obesity Action Coalition. Tell me what that does for patients. How... Why, why might I recommend that to my patients as a place for them to join? It's not expensive at all. And what, what can it do for them?
2: It provides education. It provides support and it provides advocacy for people living with obesity. In my mind, it is the essential ingredient to making progress, because 10 or 15 years ago, when I really started in the advocacy space on obesity, people living with obesity were absolutely absent because of something called internalized stigma. When people spend their entire lives hearing from the whole world around them that they are somehow less than because of their body size and shape, they start to believe it. And when people start to believe it, their health actually gets worse. And when people believe it and stay silent and put and blame themselves, then we don't have progress. We don't have access to care because the presumption is that people deserve what they get. It's a, you know, it's an utterly false and malicious assumption, but it, it was out there. And the Obesity Action Coalition plays an essential role in pushing back from that in elevating empowering and advocating for people with obesity one of the nice things about that is that in the process of gaining strength and it's now like well over 70000 members uh, we've been able to build a community of people where people connect with each other and can talk honestly and receive support so
1: one of the things as a provider that i use from oac they have a monthly magazine. And it is always front and center in my waiting room, because it's such well written information. And it really helps my patients get an opportunity to have a magazine that's really just for them, and talks about what they're living with. And so we see, we see that in almost every other chronic disease, there's, I know at least three magazines that are out there for patients living with diabetes, but for me, that's been that. So I've been a huge supporter of OAC since I first found them and encourage all of my patients to become members because it is a great, as you said, educational space. It's also a great support space. And I think many of our patients don't get that with this disease. And Ted, I think you hit it right on the nail. Having lived with this disease, I still find myself with my own internal bias about myself. And when I hear those words coming from my own judge and jury, I realize that I still haven't given up all of my biases about this disease, even personally. So Ted, I can't thank you enough for volunteering to be with me on this podcast to provide nurse practitioners an opportunity to learn more about the disease of obesity, but mostly about policy and advocacy and how they can make a difference for their patients in their practice, and maybe for some of them, even for themselves, because some of them, I'm sure, like I am, are living as a person with obesity. So I thank you very much for being with me. I just can't tell you how much it's
2: meant. Thank you. It's a real privilege to spend time with somebody like you who's every day doing so much for people living with obesity.
0: Thank you, Ted and Angie, for sharing your perspectives and insights on this extremely important topic. It's been a great segment. Your dedication and your passion, they shine through. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. If you want to be part of your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 118,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide, I urge you to become an AAMP member today. Membership gives you access to many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AAMP CE Center with hundreds of free CE. If you want to learn more about obesity management and earn CE credit, visit the AMP CE Center at amp.org forward slash CE Center and check out the Clinical Advantage Bootcamp Intermediate Certificate of Obesity Management Fundamentals. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new and informative episodes. <laughs>